Welcome to Electronically Yours with Martin Ware. Hi, it's Martin here. Electronically Yours, as always. Well, a very special two-part episode, actually. I'm going to play the first half today, and then in a couple of days, I'll put out the second half. We were getting on so well that I thought I wouldn't stop the conversation and we split it in two. So this is an artist who I've admired for quite a while. He's called Matthew Deere. He's, he's a conceptualist, he's a composer, DJ, uh, he's a rock artist. He's got several identities from um, Audion to False to, oh God, what else? Audion, False, Jabberjaw, that's another one. He's done innumerable remixes, toured with Hot Chip and Interpol and Depeche Mode. Uh, work with Simeon Mobile Disco. Uh, he's so good. Uh, you really need to check him out if you're not familiar with his work. This is one of my favourite ever interviews. As I say, we split it in two, so this is the first half of it. Here he is, Matthew Deer. out of Texas when I was 16 years old. Um, my mother had gotten a job transfer up to, to Michigan. So it was like my, I was in the summer of before my junior year of high school. So I had two more years left and I was at a very large, in Texas, San Antonio, everything's big, you know. So my school there, I think had a thousand kids per grade. Um, it, it looked like a college basically. Um, and you know, I was, I was, uh, your typical teenage, you know, middle of nowhere, you know, mindset. And my mom had asked me, she said, do you, do you mind if I, you know, do you have any thoughts on if I take a job, you know, across the country at that time? I was like, you know what? Yeah. It was that like the reset option that you get every now and then, like if you could start all over, would you? Um, so I was all for the adventure and we went up there. And I went to a school with maybe a thousand kids total, you know, in the whole school. Uh, wow. And it was, it was fun. I'm, I'm really happy I did that. And everything kind of changed musically as well. You know, went from ZZ Top and that hard rock Texas stuff on the radio to all of a sudden I'm surrounded by R&B and, you know, late night electro and techno coming on, on the radio. I was like, what is going on? Like, this is insane. So it was, it was a good move. I was... Um... I, you know, I'm from the north of England, uh, Sheffield. So um, I, have a, I have a story for you too about that one. Yeah, uh, we'll yeah we'll do that. Yeah. I'll tell you that for whatever reason, Sheffield as a steel town um, yeah. has a big connection with kind of black music. Anyway, mm -hmm. uh, soul, rare soul, northern soul, mm -hmm. uh, Motown. I mean, it's a, it's an odd thing, but it's it's was very much more adopted by the northern industrial cities more than kind of down south, really, in strange sort of way. I live in London now, I've done 40 years, but I'm always back in Sheffield. And Cold winter as well, and the climate kind of the same? Yeah, maybe. I think it's just a kind of going out at the weekend thing. Because, mm -hmm. you know, when you're working in a factory all week or a steelworks or whatever it is, you know, all you want to do is party at the weekend, right? Once mm -hmm. wage comes in. And, uh, and yeah. the sense of escape as well, you know, a lot of the... Escape. You know, the, the books have been written about the, the Belleville Three and the guys, you know, started the whole techno thing here. And they were all line workers or their family were auto line workers. And, you know, I, I think that escapism mentality from the industrial side of things, I'm sure is what I'm kind of hearing was probably happening over there too. You know, so people just have this fantasy life of, okay, what's going to happen at five o'clock on Friday? I can leave my my dull, you know, life at the factory and then go out and, and make well, some noise, be crazy. You know, when all these kind of disco records came out, particularly Donna Summer and Georgia Moreau, mm -hmm. you know, the classic work in the midnight shift track, right? I don't mm -hmm. even know that, that song, but it's all electronic. And it's like, when it came out, I'm going... I can, I mean, of course, loved I Feel Love and all, all that. Yeah, yeah. But 
something about working the midnight shift and this kind of the heroism of the working person yeah. that not just kind of um not just hedonism but kind of escapism i think you you, you nailed it completely on i that. need to know from you guys because i was eight probably you know when you were full-on you know get, yeah. getting going in my mind i had an older brother who's 50 now so he luckily I, I got to hear a lot of like new wave and industrial stuff that he somehow got a hold of in, in texas so i had his records and i was listening to you know information society and, yeah. Yeah. you know pump, pump up the volume mars herbie hancock's rocket like these are all big moments in my eight-year-old mind where i was hearing the sound that just kind of to me it sounded like the future it was like sci-fi so i want to know from you like what did it in real time, what did it sound like then? Like, were you guys also equally enamored by this new world of synthesis? And did it sound like the future? Or did it sound different than what well, had come before? It sounded like the future. But, I yeah. mean, obviously I'm a different generation to you. But growing <laughs> up, listening to um, medium wave radio mm -hmm. and uh, listening to Radio Luxembourg, which is where the new stuff uh, Yeah. And so when I was eight... Right, mm. it was very much like you, you know, you'd be sent to bed at nine o'clock or something, and and then you'd, you'd have your transistor radio and hide under, under the covers because you weren't meant to be listening to it. And so things, the the early futuristic stuff that I heard was like, you know, kind of almost like good vibrations and the synthesizers, yeah. the synthesizers they used to use on on like Motown records. Yeah, yeah. Stevie Wonder, mirror, it's really yeah, and, and through the mirrors of my mind, time after time, reflections, mm. and oh, it's just that intro. I'm going, yeah. where the fuck is this come from? And then, of course, you got the TV shows, you got Thunderbirds and all that stuff, and uh, there was a program, uh, another puppet show called Space Patrol, on which had um, just music, concrete music. That mm. was all they had. He had no abilities. So many weird choices were made back then by these music directors and, and programmers that I I wish we still had the, the balls, I guess, that people had back then to make these weird, like, soundtrack choices and stuff. You know, the templates wasn't there. They were, they were writing it. Yeah. But, um, so when when did Kraftwerk, I guess, hit you? You know, did you, did you experience it real time or was it a little bit later, like you caught up to it? I, I was much later, obviously. Even <sighs> after all my friends were into it, I didn't get it until like you know more recently well i had a uh, an amazing uh i was lucky enough to interview wolfgang fleur who was involved in the the kind yeah. of main phase of of when they became popular um and he kind of was involved in inventing the electronic drums really and yeah. uh, so but i actually used to be a big fan of prog rock you know mm -hmm. and can were you in the can uh sorry were you into Can? Oh know? yeah, he's just died, hasn't he? Unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, Can and Amon Duel and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But but also early Kraftwerk and it's come up in several podcasts recently that I I bought an early Kraftwerk LP and it was like fucking Ralph Hutter had long hair, right? <laughs> yeah, he was yeah. playing like jazz flute. Oh yeah. You know, they were, they were like noise, noise prog. Yeah. You know, there's some crazy clips on YouTube of them playing in like 72 or something and like, you know, really weird open, That's right. like That's warehouse right. things. And what I love, I, I do a class at the University of Michigan. I, I do a one credit course on kind of all things music industry. And I, I play the kids some of that footage. And I'm like, just look at the crowd. You know, all these young people have never heard this stuff before. And the way that they react, or it's just mind blowing to see their reaction in real time of what they're listening to. When you have a guy holding like a synth that's just droning, yeah, you know, they're all wearing their black leather coats and stuff. <laughs> and it's like what a time to to just be creative, you know. Well, there's a certain. I mean, I've I've done a fairly deep dive into your uh, your work in uh, today. Okay. Uh, and I'm mightily impressed, I have to say. Uh, I mean, I, uh, you know, you can take you can, you can take my word for it or not, but I don't say this to everyone. Believe me. Thank you. Really beautiful. Funny you should mention the kind of post hippie period 
stroke psychedelic period, stroke moving into the more technological aspects of prog rock. Some of what you do now you've now you've mentioned this reminds me of some of the stuff from that period. I know there's this thing about you know you do it's quite minimalist a lot of the stuff that you do, but mm-hmm. this new out al- this album that you brought out recently with which is like an, an you know an, an undiscovered album. Oh it? yeah, the last album. Uh, yeah, that actually voice. sounds like some of that that uh, krautrock stuff to me a little mm-hmm. bit. That's funny because that one, I wrote all those songs back in, what, 2007, I think. And I think that was me. It's interesting you hear that because that was, my my, my dad was a musician. And so half of my musical background is this brother record collection I talked about, you know, the the electronic stuff. But the other half is is folk and singer-songwriter, you know, Towns Van Zandt, John Prine, Guy Clark, you know, Texas, like real folk music. Um, and so my dad was a, a picker. He played acoustic guitar his whole life. And so I, that album was when I learned, basically I, I had done techno, you know, I'd done electronic based music, even with vocals. But then I started realizing, oh, let me take all the stuff I'm learning about loops and, and, and production, but just start recording like acoustic guitars and, you know, sample like a little tambourine intro. So that was me, I think, first merging the influences, you know, so that's probably why you're hearing some of that more rock stuff. Well, it's kind of there's an element of funk in there as well. I mean, in the broadest sense of the word, it's kind yeah. of groovy, right? Yeah, yeah it's a big part of my music. It's always rhythmic, you know. I'm, I'm, it's, I'm, I'm a sucker for starting with drums always when I when I write songs. Yeah. it's just a go-to, and everybody like says you don't shouldn't do that especially me i get stuck you know i always get yeah i can't get away from it i just i need that the rhythm to guide because my you know i don't sing sing like you know scales and i don't do runs and all that so i I always treated my voice a bit more like a rhythm instrument or or uh it's more of an atmosphere or uh just a, a piece of the musical part it's like where can i fit my voice in between all this to where it doesn't kind of get in the way but it's not right. going to be, it's not going to be like upfront, like the focus. I mean, I love, I love playing with the lyrics and, and the mix of my voice, but it all worked together. And I think that's the rhythmic part of my voice really needed to fit into the rhythm of it all. But the deferential element of what you're talking about is quite interesting because there's a kind of inbuilt humility, which I really like as well. Mm. And it's not like a lack of confidence. It doesn't sound like a lack of confidence. It's just like I'm not. It, the way it comes across to me is, as, as a fellow musician, is like I'm not trying to upstage the music, right? Yeah, I get that. And so <laughs> I, I, I admire that. Uh, uh, am I uh, the the flip side of that coin? Not for you, not for your stuff. Yeah. With the dance scene, is sometimes I found in the '90s in particular that uh, vocalists were often not paid enough respect, you know, and it was like, and then it became like, just like fucking samples of people, mm-hmm. wailing, you know, and I, I got a bit bored with all that shit, to be honest. Absolutely. But if you look at the, the kind of other way, the other lens I can look at your stuff is there's, there's a kind of, there's some kind of commonality between you and people like Moby, for instance, I think. Oh uh, yeah. A little I, bit. I prefer yeah. your stuff. And I would say that to him as well, um, but it, it's because it's a bit more uh, esoteric. I think Moby, good lord, how many fucking adverts was that kid on? You know, Man, never, good for him. Need, never needs to work again. I'm not saying it's his fault. It's just yeah. had that common touch thing. But um, yeah. so to anyway, let's get I, back. No, I, to answer that though. I, I think we're both. I, I don't want to speak for Moby. I've never met him, but I like to think of myself as basically just a conduit for the musical culture that I've ingested, you know? So I, I think like I'm a sampler, you know, like I sample my influences and I, I, I've always been very open about, you know, Oh, this is, this album was when I listened to all David Byrne, Brian, you know, stuff for, you know, a year straight. Uh, another album was Gary Newman, you know, I was, I was deep in the Gary's catalog and just obsessively listening to stuff and then going to the studio and being like, Oh, let me, let me try to make my version of what I think yeah. that is. 
I think Moby might kind of do that a little bit too with the soul and stuff that he was getting on, on that time. Um, and Fatboy yeah. Slim as well. And, yes, uh, that actually just popped in my head when you were talking about Moby. I'm like, also Fatboy Slim, because I was better living through chemistry or the first one. Was that the very first one he did? Yeah. Uh, the orange and blue one I found at a record store. So this was before, you know, he blew up, blew up. This is this is my like 19-year-old like chemical brothers. Yeah. Right before they got huge. Daft Punk was just starting. Homework just came out. So there was a time for me as an as a as a young, you know, music lover, just moved to Michigan. All of a sudden, the sound that I have obsessed with and synthesizers and things that sound futuristic is breaking globally on like MTV. Um, you know, late, late night shows are playing chemical brothers videos and Daft Punk. And then all of a sudden it's all hitting me. And I'm just like, okay, like, yes, this is my generation's version of, you know, the, the psychedelic thing or, or the hippie thing. And I just went full on, you know, and then first, first rave I went to in Detroit shortly after that kind of saw the DJ thing and was like, okay, so all makes sense. Like this is this is the direction I need to go in. And did you feel like you'd kind of just slotted into a niche? Because there aren't that many people that that kind of occupy the space you do. That kind of I don't know. It's a weird combination of kind of minimal minimalist techno mm -hmm. and a bit of soulfulness in there, and yeah. and kind of uh, that intimacy of a uh, 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 of that humility of the uh, vocals. Anyway, I'm just a fan, so I'm rattling yeah. on. Um, yeah. Likewise, though, by the way, I mean, oh, I, I've, you I've, had many, that, but, yeah. I've had many, many experiences to your music. <laughs> oh, God. I, I dread to think. Um, <laughs> so how did you discover Eno? I know you're, you, you're a big fan, and so am I, of course. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He's agreed to come on the podcast a couple of times, and I've never oh, yeah. managed to pin him down yet, but anyway. Yeah, I've never met him face-to-face. -face. You know, maybe I've shared one email chain with being on the same one with him that was like, oh, my gosh. You know? um, so Eno, Eno's weird in the way that, you know, I was very late to 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 learn about lots of music, you know, I'm very short-sighted and kind of, if I, if I find something, I, I obsess over it and then people try to send me other stuff. It's like, no, 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 I don't want to listen to that. So, you know, coming up in my twenties or whatever, uh, I don't know when exactly I, I got, you know, here come the warm jets or. What a know. record that is, by the way. Yeah. And so, or another green world. And, yeah. you know, right when I got these things, it was, and I don't mean this in any way of like, like kind of boasting my own, abilities but it was like when you get these missing links you know and you're kind of like oh like okay like yeah like that fills in this giant gap in my musical mind of how we got here you know um and i don't know if it's the tape looping of it all like or hearing like just the repetition and and you know the minimalism a bit but it all really like helped me understand my direction a lot more you know like mm -hmm. I, I realized, Oh, these are the, the choices I'm making now have been made before, you know, 20 years prior by this guy in, in England who was you know doing all this stuff way ahead of time. My life in the bush at ghosts that, that album he did with David oh, Byrne. Amazing. Like just the sampling and, and the, the style of it just still, when I first found that we got re-released you know, in the, in the two thousands, it just like, Whoa, like, yes, this is a huge part of the, you know, our musical lexicon. Like this is, this is a, the missing link of how we got here. Yeah, and actually yeah. I got to meet David once and I asked him about that. And, uh, he, it's funny because he jerked it off to like Holger, you know, to Chuke and, and the guys in Cannes saying like, Oh, well they, they did the tape loops and stuff way before we did, you know? So kind of like he was, he was also, saying, well, we didn't invent it, you know, we got it from the 70s, you know, experimental kind of uh, tape loop stuff. So yeah, I think we're always just looking and, and trying to figure it out and then do our version of it, you know. Yeah, of course. Um, did you ever get into people like Terry Riley and yeah. uh, and stuff like that? Because that, to me, was a major uh, turning Absolutely. point for me. That led Absolutely. me into the whole ambient thing and... And uh, you know, no pussy footing 
with and Robert Fripp, who's an enormous yeah. Steve Reich. I mean, Steve Reich like, and um, all this stuff was just, and all that. Yeah, you hear it and you're just like, oh, like is that how it was with Kraftwerk? That's what I was kind of asking about Kraftwerk because the when I finally got into Kraftwerk and got it, I heard it like you look at like Eames furniture or yes. Frank, or like a Frank Frank Lloyd Wright house. It's like it it lives in its own separate thing you know it's it's obviously it's vintage it's 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 antiquated but it's it's nobody else ever did that and well it, it, it's designerly it isn't it it's designerly that's what that that's the very word. design very design and obviously the artwork the presentation but i just i still can't figure out how they synced it all and got it all so perfect you know it's like it's like when you hear dark side of the moon too you know kind of like it like it doesn't make sense like like knowing the technology that was around, it's like they had secret tools or like watching a Stanley Kubrick movie. You're kind of like, no, like, how did he do that? You know, nobody else could like Kraftwerk kind of fits in that space for me. Well, our first um, Human League album was made before MIDI came out. And, um, And half of the second one as well. And we did experiment with synchronization because we realized it was it was the key to it really like pulse, pulse clocks or uh yeah we used clock we used uh, i can't remember where it was 60 hertz clocks or mm-hmm. um it was very clunky though i mean like that was that was the good thing about that time and then the amazing thing was the um h3000 came out Oh yeah, what a fucking machine. and that could sample a whole second and a half. Yeah, and we and you could trigger it using audio. Mm-hmm. So now I'm going right now, and of course, within months, the um, the uh, the um, you know the Fairlight came out, mm-hmm. and Ian from the band. Okay, we just turned up at the studio one day. We were writing, and he said. Oh, I bought a Fairlight. I'm going, you what? Yeah. It's 30,000 pounds worth. How did he get that? He just went and bought it. We had one of the first five in the country. So, of course, the first thing we did was go, right, we're going to do all our own samples. I mean, because it comes with a whole bunch of samples. Mm -hmm. All our own samples. So we spent three weeks sampling shit. Mm -hmm. And we went... The percussion, oh, things like you know, the uh, we sample stuff from records and breaks and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. uh, but but we also sampled things like we we hired a whole bunch of um, percussion. So we're 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 sampling percussion and we're putting it in and we're doing like crash symbols and rise symbols and we're going in is <clears throat> crashing it is going beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. And he comes back and he goes, and I'm going, what the fuck's going on here? Oh, great. 30, 30 grand of the equipment and it's it's broken, right? Yeah. So we rang up Australia and the guy said, ah, oh, no, mate, that's the quantizing noise. It only goes up to like, uh, it, it's only goes up to like uh, 12K or whatever. So yeah. what? It's not doing what it says on the tin here. You know, you can't. Uh, so anyway. Cut a long story short, the Fairlight was great for kind of middley sounds and stuff like that. And he did a lot of stuff with Page R and all that. But it was it basically got superseded really quickly by I bought an emulator too, which could do all that shit. And it sounded mm-hmm. great. I um, talked to Robin Miller, uh, you know, producer of Yeah, he's a friend of mine. Yeah. And he he told me the story about how they made um you know what's what's the biggest hit they did. Um one of the biggest Sade songs. Um, and he said they did the, they had the rhythm, I think, and the bass guitar in the H3000. Like they, they took loops and samples right. or pieces of it. And that's how they tracked the, the whole record. Um, and he said, that's kind of what gives it that sound that is, is a bit more like current. Like it's, it sounds sampled almost, you know, it's not a live drummer playing it. Interesting. And they would, it would trigger it with the audio, you know. Um, and if you listen to, what's, I'll, I'll look it up the song, but um, 
when I heard that, I was like, oh yeah, it's like, and hearing you guys talk, you know, or hearing you talk about your process, it's funny how there weren't like rule books, you know, there was no instruction manual for how to do it. You had an idea and you're like, well, okay, I'll figure it out. And then those are kind of the happy accidents that resulted yeah. in, you know, certain sounds or certain, certain genres even, you know, like took off just from weird experimentations. Exactly. And, um, I did an interview with Tony Visconti and oh, wow. who, you know, is one of my all time heroes, of course. Yeah. And, um, I said to him that seven of my top 12 albums he produced mm -hmm. uh, of all time. Anyway, low, yeah. low. He, he explained in detail, um, about how he made those drum sounds, you know, like speed of life and all. I got to listen to that. Be my wife and all that stuff. And that was the H three thousand as well, on with a feedback loop on. Yeah. So like it got this weird. It was like a an anomaly within the machine, um, where if you played it live, I can't remember exactly how it did it, but if you played a live snare into it, mm -hmm. and you set it to a a, a certain. Um, delay and you put a bit of feedback on sometimes it would it would work properly and sometimes it would kind of glitch hmm. so you got uh what's that song uh is that on low? or it might be on heroes can't remember anyway i think it's on low um so he'd hit the snare and said go crack mm -hmm. then the next snare and it'd be random when, when this would happen we'll go ka -ka 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 -ka. oh yeah and then the next one would go and it was the, probably the, clock, go, the clock was probably trying to catch up with yeah you know, it, it's like some weird but that's what made it sound so yeah. organic but futuristic and that is what i fell in love with and that was actually Low was probably the album that inspired us most to make mm. the Human League what it was, really. Wow. Well, nightclubbing too. I'm, I'm reminded of nightclubbing. They yeah. Song. I think that they ran the drum. I, I think Bowie produced that one, right? He did. Uh, he did. Probably around the same time. And I, I remember he said, like, Iggy showed up with this, like, drum machine or something. And they, nobody had ever, like, seen one before. And they're like, well, let's try to make a song with it. And it was like a late night in Berlin. And they just plugged it in. Yeah. and you know, I think it's running through the an H eight thousand like, and it's got those like really like wide what you're kind of describing those like zingy, you know, like Lennon micro John, delay micro delays. Now we can control delay. that. Yes. Yeah. And it's just it's that like width a little bit. So it's it's basically like a really rudimentary fake like room reverb that you're creating, but it's like a it's like a very digitized version of you know maybe a sound that your brain's used to hearing. Um, what? Like what John Lennon's would remind me of that stuff too, but he was doing it was probably yeah, more yeah. basic what effects. I, what I love about your stuff is I'm never quite sure what's going to come next. And I, 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 really, <laughs> I really appreciate that because there's so much predictability in contemporary music. Yeah. Uh, and I find that um, I was listening, I, I listened to the whole of Black City, which I think is a work of. Yeah. That's one of my favorite. Yeah, it's a masterpiece. Let's that was out. like the Gary Newman stuff. That was, and, and I talked about that during the time, and, and he word got to him, and he he kind of sent me a message through management saying thank you for kind of giving me some giving me some love in the press, and um, that that was like definitely a big influence on just probably you guys too, actually around that time, like just that kind of turning point away from, I think, like the fantasy of it all and just it just felt a bit colder you know a bit more like real yeah, um, yeah. so just to recap on your uh songwriting process yeah. yes felt with the drums you get a groove going mostly or a sample yeah or a sample or whatever and then i couldn't play a, a chord if, if you asked me to you know on a keyboard i play a little guitar but i can play a chord you know, I can I can put my hands on the keys and, and make things happen that sound pretty good, but I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> Join the club. I, yeah. I remember I remember seeing the sheet music for Luxury Gap when it came out. 
Okay. I'm going, I'm a fucking jazz genius, man. It was in like the key of like seven flats or I don't know what the fuck was going on. Um, but I think if you've got a good ear, basically, I don't read or write music and neither does everyone, so that's good enough for me. Neither did Paul or John, so we're okay. Yeah, yeah, I think we're all right. Um, so I've got a giant amount of stuff to get through here. Oh, my yeah. God. Well, I'm all yours. Uh, okay. Yours. <laughs> um, but, yes, your process. So yeah. there's a certain thing that Eno does, going back to Eno for a second, that yeah. um, I think anybody who loves his work, you can discern a certain style. So he's he understands and loves traditional pop and rock songwriting. Mm-hmm. But... Um, there's always a kind of layer of atmos, and it could mm-hmm. be chords, it could be samples, it could be a self, gen, you know, a generating a, a generative kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And there's some of that in in what you do as well. I've noticed it's yeah. quite common. So when you're not doing like kind of, I'll, I'll say the word funky. It's not really funky, but you know, yeah, no. groovy, minimalist kind of rhythms and stuff. The ones that have a bit more of an epic kind of scale tend to have this kind of layer of, I often think of it as with Eno and with now I've heard you, it's like you could strip away all the rhythm bit and you could just have this beautiful kind of atmospheric soundscape thing going on. Do you think of it in that way? Absolutely. You know, there's a, there's a vibe in every song. Um, and I, I, I tell my students this as well at, at University of Michigan. I said the Beatles didn't have different chords than you do you know we all have the same chords we all have the same kind of tools it's it's what you do in that moment when the record button is on or or you're laying a song out on your computer it's it's all that stuff that fits kind of in between everything that kind of makes a song so unique you know that's the vibe that you know the soul of, of a song and i think what you're hearing what you're talking about with my music is you know, I've always treated that layer, I think, almost as the most important because my first albums were made on a, a Sony desktop PC. You know, I, I came right at the end of hardware. So I, I got, you know, I had an Sonic sampler and an MPC 2000. Um, but then all of a sudden in college, you know, I got a computer for like work and I'm a freshman and I meet other guys. And I say, hey, you've got to get this. There's like a, a program called Making Waves. Uh, right, early right, right. And that that blew my mind because all of a sudden now we have a computer that can be fast enough and and the storage, the memory can be big enough to take these samples and really start manipulating them and, and tracking them out and arranging them. And that just changed everything for me. So I'm, I'm in the box now, but then I'm realizing, Oh, when, when you get completely in this synthetic machine, you can very easily be too clean or too, yes. too precise. So I think, for me, it was very important to kind of find that 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 the ambience or that 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 other thing that you know, might exist in a sample or a loud mic, you know, recording more of the room noise. Um, you know, you listen to like the original. I, I think they're editing a lot of stuff out, unfortunately, with all the re-releases. But you know, the original Beatles albums, like you heard, you heard fingers on strings. You know, you heard yeah. you hear breath. You hear breaths before a verse. And then you hear like you hear a slide of like a like you know that is what makes the song. I'm with you, mate. You know, the creases are the things you've got to keep in. In fact, sometimes, oftentimes, they're better than uh, the actual cloth you're trying to iron. You know what I mean? It's like the 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 creases are the magic. In fact, I'm I'm just uh, I did a. Uh, an autobiography last year and uh, I've been trying to think of a title for volume two and and I came up with Mining for Magic because I think mm. actually like that's that. what a great producer and songwriter or people I'm not great by the way but you know, that's what I'm saying but that's what the best do they're mining for that magic mo- ma- and if you can get multiple magic moments in a song even better mm-hmm. But if it gets, if you go, I think I, I've got this kind of rule of thumb that if you're going 40, maybe 45 seconds or a minute uh, in in any part of the song and there's not a bit of magic happening, then you're failing. Totally. 
Yeah. And that's my problem is I can work on a loop trying to look for that magic. I can work on a loop all day, you know, and, and just kind of tinker. I love, I just love messing with sound, you know, like, and, and just playing with it. Um, and you do a lot of stuff for ads as well. And, and, and as much as I should, I've, I've had a really unique ad relationship. I've, I've been hired by, you know, some of the giants like GE, Microsoft, Ford to do these really cool, like one-off, like they're, they're ads, but they're a bit more art-based yeah. projects. So for example, Ford, they just released a new Mustang, a Mach-E, you know, electric Mustang. Uh, and this ad agency from Detroit was a big fan of my work and understood kind of where I'm coming from. They said, hey, let's let's get you the sounds of the Mach-E, like the digital sounds that they made for this, this driving experience and have you remix the sounds. I'm like, oh, you, well, I'm basically remixing a car. And they're like, yeah, yeah I love yeah. it. But then they make a big movie about it, like a, 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 an internet movie. And, you know, Ford puts it up on their website and tweets about it and all that. And so, and I get paid a nice chunk of money from Ford for doing it all. But if you ask, I have tried doing like actual spec, like commercial, like sound design stuff. And I, I didn't go to the right schools for that. So, you yeah. know. No, but not, interesting. I did a similar project to the car one you were saying. Did a project <laughs> with, um, there was this um, this curator who came, approached me and said, look, we're doing kind of, uh, we're marrying together manufacturing and um and art and musical artists. Um, mm. Would you like to do something with one of these companies in the north of England? And said, yeah, sure. Who have you got in mind? And they said Silent Night, which is a mattress manufacturer. Oh, <laughs> and I was going, that's fucking awesome. Let's get to the factory and let's see what's going on. So we mm. ordered a whole bunch of... Uh, they have this testing uh, test bed thing where they literally have artificial arses sitting on beds <gasps> and, and they have rollers going on them, like going mm -hmm. for like 10 days to test yeah, yeah. springs and all these things had a rhythm. So we combined them yeah, all. Yeah. And then we took uh, the sound of the, the mattresses being assembled and stapled and, you know, steam guns and oh, mm -hmm. incredible stuff. And it just sounded like fucking craft work by the yeah. time we finished with it. And we made a video with all the workers like miming to it and stuff. It was great. That's the thing. There's there's art in everything, you know. I you know, know. We can we can find it. Like you said, mining. You know, you're, just, you're always mining for the magic and, and trying to trying to just see where you can make something interesting happen. Um, and that's why I like those projects. And if a, if a major company, a corporation, wants to spend money on promoting art, you know, like I'm all for it. Absolutely. You know? So tell us about your um, your other identities then. I mean, I've got yeah. what have I got here? Audion, False. Yeah. There's all sorts, right? So yeah, I did, I did some stuff for as Jabberjaw for Perlon in, in Berlin. Um, so basically, yeah, you know, myself, my birth name, Matthew Deer, is, is like the hub. You know, it's, it, it all comes through me. But every now and then, you know, at certain points in my life or career, there were times where I, an, an alias would kind of help everybody out, you know, whether it be the record label that wanted to put out that music or the listener trying to discern my output and not go to the record store and buy, you know, a Matthew Deere record. And all of a sudden it's a, it's a hard audio techno song, you know? So I think I just needed to kind of differentiate a bit, you know, back when genre mattered a bit more um, than it does now. But yeah, it was just, a way for me to kind of categorize all the noise that was happening, and especially when I was younger, I, I, I was so much more prolific. I think I still make as much music now, but you know, back then I think I, I finished a lot more music and I had, I had to put it out, you know? Uh, so Audion was like my, that's my biggest other alias. It's techno. It's like, that's why I tell you that's my dance floor music, you know, right, right. Songs, songs that are made for DJs to be played in clubs or, you know, night, nighttime venues. The stuff I do is myself is I say that's what you listen to when you're driving your car or your home and everything else. There's a few other false was for minus Richie Hawkins label. That was like a, a more stripped down techno thing. And then right. Jabber was a bit funny, like quirky. What's uh, what's the most commercially successful? 
Um, I mean, it's got to be stuff I do as myself. Um, it's funny. I'll, I'll have, I'll get differing opinions on that. You know, I've, I've been playing as a DJ, you know, when I go out and DJ, yeah. that's the most confusing for people that, cause they just don't know what they're going to get. Turn up? <laughs> you know, and, and when I DJ, I play house and techno. Cause I, I, I started going to raise in Detroit and like, that's what DJs play. It's like dance music, you know? Um, and so I remember playing in Berlin once at Watergate club. And after the set, a girl came up to me and she said, Hey, um, I just want to let you know that was the worst set I've ever heard. Yeah. And I was like, okay, like, why? Like, let's talk about this. And she said, well, you didn't play any of your own music is Matthew Deere. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah. Like, when I DJ, I play techno and house because that's kind of where I, yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't think of playing, you know, my songs with words and it's like not the right environment. But for her, you know, as a listener, she was kind of, confused and I'm not judging her opinion, but you know, I think that's a little bit of the problem of I've created, you know, doing so many different things that sometimes you can't please everybody, you know, all the time. Uh, you do, but most, uh, most people get it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you do, um, radio shows or, any, or a podcast or anything? I know you're doing this, but. No, yeah. I'm, um, I don't have any, like, I don't do it myself, but you know, you are just a natural. You you like your voice is so uh, radio friendly. It's like yeah, my mom always told me I should like fucking Wolfman Jack. You know, yeah. <laughs> I, even, I even have my I'm on my road mixer so I can do this. Very good. Oh man, I've got to do something that you give me an idea now. I'm gonna have a fucking. Sampler ready for when I do the podcast. That's a good idea. Um, so what are you doing next? Uh, yeah, good question. Um, I went through a, pay, a, a period. It's, it's good we're talking now because I, I am, I think, on the, on, I'm on the verge of the next thing right now. And I'll be honest, you know, for the last three years, you know, COVID, um, oh. Black Lives Matter, Me Too all these massive cultural shifts were going on. And as a, as a, as a male musician, um, you know, also with three kids now, you know, raising my kids was, was a big part of the last like, 10 years the same for me as well. Yeah. But then COVID, you know, like COVID, I mean, I told everybody, I don't know a single musician or DJ that wasn't wishing for time off. Um, you know, in 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 the DJ circuit, you know, I, I was never, I, I was a lot busier in the 2000s, you know, when I was in my 20s or 30s, but I chose to just step back and kind of be at home a lot more. Good. But I have friends that are, you know, they play 370 days a year, you know, like there's, there's guys out there that are just living out of suitcases and constantly touring. So I didn't know anybody that didn't say, man, if I could just get like a month off from all this noise, you know, I'd be happy, you know, and it came about in a really, um, crushing manner. I mean, I'm not, I'm not thankful for, for the, the problems that came with COVID, but I am thankful for the time that I got to just reassess and, and be home. We started a forest school, you know, my wife's a teacher by trade. We got our kids outside in the woods mm -hmm. I learned about tree identification. I learned about like more about fungus and lichen, which is what I was kind of getting into. So I learned how to like identify mushrooms and yeah, I made a little show for, you know, like just a catalog of a little video show, but it just allowed all this extra stuff. You know, I learned more about, um, video editing finally, you know, a little bit of graphic design. So it was that, it was that time to just do other stuff and, and also just be, be home and, and not have to worry about getting on, a, on an airplane or, you know, living out of a suitcase for a while. And so I think, long story short, I think I got really accustomed to that. And I, I got very comfortable not touring and not going out. Um, and then all that other stuff happened, you know, you know, the cultural stuff happened. Yeah, yeah. And as, as, like I said, as a young or middle-aged white man uh, in America, you know, with daughters and, and, you know, um, I have a son as well, but, I just kind of lost my direction. You know, I just, I didn't know 
what the point was anymore. You know, and so I, I, I remember going to the studio and I'd still make music and stuff, but I couldn't sing about anything. Like I couldn't, I couldn't write anything down like lyrically because everything I'd try is like, mm, like what, like what am I even trying to say? Like, first of all, who wants to hear me say anything? You know, it's, it's not my time. Um, but also it's like, what, what could I say that would add anything to the narrative that we're all living through right now? And so I, I only lay all that out because now I'm finally like, I, I sent 20, 30 songs to the label to ghostly. We're, we're starting the next album. Now I'm, I'm about to start mixing and finalizing, you know, 10, 12 songs. Um, and I'm excited about it. It doesn't feel, Good. it doesn't feel wrong. And I think I tried to do this last year and I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't like, I couldn't sign off on it still. Cause I think I had a lot of that residue. But now I finally feel like, okay, like turn the page, like let's, let's move on. So that's what I'm working on now. I'm, I'm, I'm getting the new album together. Um, I'm, I'm also putting some more techno together for another label. Um, I'm collaborating, you know, with some other artists right now. I'm trying to get some more songs together. It just feels exciting and it feels, it feels authentic. And I think that's the most Good. important. Good. It's just not, not to go not to go through the motions, you know, that's the worst part of sometimes being a, a creative. Um, and I've, you know, I've heard people talk about it. There's creator burnout. You know, oh there's... my gosh. I had the same messy. I mean, I didn't want yeah. to interrupt your flow there, but no, no, no. I, I think, uh, for me, I think artists are, you are what you eat, you know, so you are what you consume in terms of influencers. You can't get away from it. Can you? No. Stuff everywhere on film, TV, even if you're watching stuff on your laptop, you know, let alone whether you choose to listen to music or not. Mm -hmm. And I just felt completely disincentivized and uninspired during COVID. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't work, uh, uh, I didn't have the burnout thing like it sounded like you might have had mm -hmm. uh, until a bit later on. It's when I was coming back and going, we were doing gigs and doing all this stuff, and it was great. But I just thought, the world's a changed place, you know. Is this is this still going to work, even? And then I realised that more than ever, people need a distraction from the existential terror of uh, of a lot of what's going on. Mm -hmm. and, um, so I think to be an entertainer is a noble profession. It is. And there's a great Poe interview where he talks about all that, you know, kind of the importance of, of, of the artist, you know, or like kind of like the things that he had to kind of his, his code of ethics almost of like what, what made him, you know, tick and what made him be Bowie. I'm not going to paraphrase any of it, but, um, you know, that's, that's kind of, it's like, it's like, be, it's like being, conceited and a narcissist but at the same time you're you're because basically like you have to believe in your craft you know you you have to believe that somebody wants to hear what you're doing um and if you don't like you're lost you're a lost cause and i think that's kind of what it was too you know yeah. but now I, now i realize okay well i chose this i'm a musician um you know and there are countless other musicians who do it differently and do it their own way but nobody does it the way i do it you know i do it my way and i've got you know a few people out there that that like the way i do it and if nothing else i owe it to them you know yeah, to, keep, of course. to keep doing this um right and what you're describing here is the absolute template for what it means to be an artist yeah and, and struggle, struggling with that is important. And struggling, too. yeah, it's not always yeah. good news. It, it's That's like, right. it's like as you say, it's like the confidence of knowing that you have something mm -hmm. uh, that's valuable and is important to some people at least. Mm -hmm. Combined, <laughs> and the on the flip side of the of the coin uh, of the insecurity of whether you even want to do it anymore. Sometimes, sometimes I just I go entire weeks where I don't. Want, don't want to listen to music. And then I pick up a set of headphones again and I listen to something and I go, fuck, and I, all I do is listen to music all day. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I and, think and I, moon too. I think I think yeah. we're all on a cycle. You know, yeah. and I really want to because I did the same thing, and I I need to keep a journal of sorts because I swear this thing is like it's more predictable than I think we realize. You know, yeah. I, I, I started to keep in a journal. Yeah. Actually, I am keeping a journal, and you know, one of those things that pops up on your phone, and it goes, "How are you feeling today? What you know?" Gonna, okay. And you describe it in a, in a couple of keywords and blah, blah, blah. And it's very interesting looking at the patterns that emerge. Are you seeing patterns? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and and I kind of intuitively know what what the what major patterns are. What makes me happier than anything, apart from obviously health and, mm. uh, you know, and being mentally well is, mm. is um, creativity. It's that simple. If I don't feel inspired to be creative, I have to force myself. Uh, but as soon as I force myself, I'm grateful. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, and then the best times, of course, so when it's when it's like opening a tap and it just gushes, mm-hmm. and it's just yeah. a matter of capturing it before the fucking thing disappears again. Yeah. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Tom Waits has some really good quotes about that process in songwriting and he's he says basically you know it's like you can be driving down the la freeway and all of a sudden you're you're stuck in traffic and like the song just appears in your head and you're like now like right now like honestly <laughs> like like couldn't you wait until i was at the studio or something? <laughs> you know and it's like you gotta just like you, you have to be open and receptive you know or, yeah, or yeah. Somebody said it's like fishing you know like you, you go fishing but you don't always catch something. Uh, you're not always pulling up a gem. And I also like, you know, I was looking at Max Martin's like catalog recently because my my kids are big into Taylor Swift right now, which is awesome. Um, and or even Taylor, you know, I, I'm hearing all of Taylor songs right now because I have an 11 year old daughter. And you realize they're not all gold, you know. Like there's a lot of Taylor songs that that she writes that aren't catchy or not hits, but it's her doing taylor like she has to write those songs to get to the hits you know to get to the bigger ones and i looked at max martin's catalog and kind of the same thing like he's had 25 plus you know number one billboard hits but i guarantee you there's probably like a hundred songs you've never heard of oh he's at least at least you know? and so you kind of we don't in this day and age and you know social media and everything you know all we're seeing is the cherries on top yeah, you know, the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. the tip, the tip, you know, and because nobody's showing their their minor successes or their their failures, you know. So you're not, you don't remember that there is a lot of that other stuff that kind of is under the iceberg, and mm. you know, not you just have to not be afraid, and you can't get stuck, you know, going to the studio hoping for the tip of the iceberg every time. Um, no, you can't. To get the uh, piano and, and trying to write a song, because you realize, okay, it's it's not always there. Like those are the rare moments. Yeah. Um. Two, a couple of things spring to mind. Uh, <laughs> you're a teacher. Uh, I did six years as principal of a MA course in songwriting oh, amazing. Nice. and production. So, and I did a lot of mentoring for uh, you know, kind of early twenties, very talented songwriters. And, oh, amazing. Uh, a lot of them lack the big thing they lack is not talent, it's confidence. Yeah. And, and so I'm constantly torn when I'm doing these podcasts into saying to, I, I keep coming back to this thing, and there's like a little demon in the back of my head going, fuck, I should do a podcast about failure. Yes. Because that would give the confidence to people who think that all they see is success. Yeah, and, and only allow you know the guests to talk about. The, yeah, the, that's it. Never talk about the success. We'll yeah. just assume that they know that you are a successful artist. Yeah, yeah, and it'd be very interesting to see how many people would agree to do that podcast. Yeah, that's because true. Because I think they're the artists. You see. Mm. Anyway. fascinating he's, he's a really interesting guy exceptionally talented 
Hope you're all well. Feel free to email me electronicallymartin at gmail.com or if you want to help keep this podcast going, uh, patreon.com stroke electronicallyhours if you want to contribute towards that. Get special content as well. Part two coming up in a couple of days. I'll see you then. Bye. Right, this is a Patreon message from Bob Helrich Dawson. Helrich. Thanks for your great podcast. Found it during pandemic. It really helped boost my spirits. Well, part of the reason for me doing the podcast was to boost my own spirits. I particularly love your chit-chatty way of interviewing. <laughs> it's a lot that's gonna say it's a lot of fun to basically hear two friends have a talk about their mutual interests. I think that's the point of it all. I wonder what you think about the following suggestions. Reverend Richard Coles, I know him, of course. Uh, Kathy Unsworth, I've done it. Uh, that's about to come out. It's already been on the Patreon page. Uh, how about churches? Uh, oh, yeah, people yeah, about churches. That's, that's an idea. Gillian Gilbert, that'd be nice. Chris yeah, Lowe. Uh, thanks and keep up the great work. Bob from far inland, Northern California. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. And there's a follow-up message. Hold on a sec. Oh, Martin, I forgot two other possible interviewees, Left Field and John Carter, Monkey Mafia, Junior Cartier. That'd be cool. Left Field would be cool. Left Field. I don't know the other I one. Know, one of the guys from Left Field, I can't remember his name now, was my engineer uh, oh, yeah, when we were doing some stuff. And then next thing I know, he's got a number one record, you know. Yeah. Typical, anyway. Uh, next one's Ben Cardew, I've got. Ben, what's the date on that? 23rd of the 9th. 23rd, yeah, I've got that. Ben Cardew, Chicago, dot, dot, dot. Hello, Martin. I'm a listener to your podcast, shamefully late, but I really enjoyed your interview with Derek Carter, someone who I've tried and failed to interview for my own podcast, Line Noise, and a big plug here, he includes a link to his podcast, Line Noise. He was a fascinating guest, and it made me think, I would love it if you could interview more Chicago house people on the podcast, particularly DJ Sneak, who I tried to interview for my Daft Punk book, um, which he plugs, and who told me to F off. <laughs> With your musical background history, I think he might say yes to you. Oh, DJ know. Sneak, that'd be cool. <laughs> um, P.S. I think we met at Primavera Pro in Barcelona many years ago. I used to help organise it. Oh, right. From okay. Ben. Thanks, Thanks Ben. Ben. Uh, DJ Sneak, yeah, I'll put that down. 